welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast Series. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your host each week and your interviewer. I'm privileged now to be in 200 and something number of episodes, and we're delighted that you continue to uh, join us each week, whether it's on video or in audio, and feel free to review and rate and refer the podcast into all of your colleagues, friends, and families. Each week, we invite a different thought leader on to our podcast, increasingly from somewhere around the world, as Franklin Covey is a global company, and I'm privileged each week to interview them and glean an insight out of them that also becomes the basis of a series of books that I've written for HarperCollins called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. The first book was released last year, became an instant number one new release on Amazon, and now I have published volume two of Master Mentors, 30 new mentors, 30 new insights available now for pre-order at all your favorite retailers, including Amazon, releasing on October 4th on my way to Master Mentors Volume 3 next year. Perhaps today's guest might even agree to be featured in one of the future books. Our guest today is a friend of mine from Australia. He's an expert on kind of the human condition. He's had a remarkably interesting journey and path. He remains one of the most sought-after, in-demand speakers on the Australian continent, soon to be making a visit here to the U.S. as he will burst on the scene. His name is Jim Fuller. He is a coach, advisor, author, speaker. His book is called The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men, a way to fulfilling your potential. So women and men, listen up today. This will be a great conversation with my friend Jim Fuller. Jim, welcome to On Leadership. Scott Miller, thank you so much for having me on. I mentioned off air that you and I become friends over the last year via LinkedIn, other social media platforms. I, I've been a great follower and interest of your insights on the, uh, the art, if you will, of communication, how we get it right, how we get it wrong, understanding our intent, our motive, the why behind we're saying the things we do. Today, we're going to talk about a variety of practical ways to improve our relationships through our communication. I also mentioned off air that you and I have very little in common in terms of our journeys, right? I've had a fairly typical corporate career in, in America, and you've had a very unconventional life journey where you have done a tremendous amount of self-discovery. You lead a lot of outdoor adventures and leadership retreats. You're a coach and advisor to many people um, around the globe. Jim, would you do our guests and listeners the service of perhaps letting them revisit your journey and don't leave out any of the details. Talk a little bit about some of your ups and your downs and we'll get into some of the insights on your book. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, I could quite easily have had a very similar journey to you. You know, I was born into middle-class suburban Melbourne, Australia, which is, you know, you've got Sydney and Melbourne and, the, the, and Brisbane are the biggest cities here. And so it quite easily could have been like that. And uh, I went to a, a good, you know, private school and, uh, everything seemed pretty cookie cutter-esque. But for some reason, uh, I was pretty determined to, um, to shake that all up. And so as soon as I finished high school, I just couldn't get as far enough away from, you know, the normal paradigm. For some reason, I was driven to, to rebel, really, to be honest. And I was very anti-establishment. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to do the rat race. I didn't want to do the suit and tie. I didn't just, I just wanted to get as far away as possible. So that saw me spending most of my twenties and early thirties traveling to far and wild and very different countries, places. I was driven to get to places that were really different to where I grew up. 
Um, I've psychoanalyzed myself on that since to try and figure out why. But anyway, look, it led to lots of adventures and, you know, a life earning money in any different way that I could from fire dancer to tattooist to kindergarten teacher in Taiwan. I still shake my head as how I ended up doing that, but I enjoyed it. Uh, volunteer in third world countries and you name it. I've, I've, I've packed a lot in. Um, jump into early 30s, fell in love, got married, had kids, had to provide for the kids, didn't know what to do. Uh, got a job with an international travel company, ended up in that suit and tie. Uh, so spent eight years in that, had a, had a wonderful time and ended up in senior leadership. Uh, lots of leadership coaching and, and personal development in that role, which was great. Uh, and what I loved about that, what I was fascinated in that I learned in that role was about human behavior, um, you know, NLP, profiling, all the cool stuff. And I wanted to do that. I wasn't so much into driving net profit month on month, quarter on quarter. And just this incessant kind of inherent corporate drive just focused on the net profit. I was more interested in the people, you know, and, and how do we connect and, and bring the best out of each other? How do we expand into our potential? Uh, so I, that led, I, I ended up having a midlife crisis, insert midlife crisis, um, and lost my job, lost my marriage, lost my house, lost everything except my two teenage boys, thankfully, um, had them 50-50. And had to go to work on myself, you know, because I'd really lost my way. And they were dark times, really, really, really tough about 10 years ago. And started my own coaching practice and have spent the last 10 years figuring stuff out, you know, figuring a lot of stuff out and creating a really beautiful life. So now I feel very blessed, very grateful to do what my heart calls me to do and to be able to feed my kids at the same time and put a roof over their head. Uh, yeah, so there you go in a nutshell. Uh, Jim, I too was a fire dancer and tattooist earlier in life, and it just did not work out for me. I'm kidding. I mean, this is you, you graze over these things as if these are common careers. How in the heck did you become a fire dancer, and what is a fire dancer? Yeah, um, I don't know. I was, I was living, I spent a couple of years um, basically on the Indian subcontinent, and uh, depending on your perspective, you'd either look at me as a hippie or a bum, <laughs> Or, or someone seeking spiritual enlightenment that I never quite found. Um, or, or from the Indian perspective, on their subcontinent, they probably looked at me as a sadhu. You know, I had long dreadlocks and a beard and I was spent most of my time barefoot. I really wanted to escape. And, you know, yeah, I really was on a, I was, a, I was heartbroken at the time. I was in my late 20s. Anyway, so I was living up in the Himalayan mountains with a family that are still my Himalayan family to this day. We run retreats there now, which is beautiful. So I've known this family in this little village for 25 years. And I was living there and some other hippies came past and they were fire twirling. So they, you light the ends of a stick on fire and spin the stick around or, you know, there's other, other toys, fire toys. And that looked like fun. So I said, can you show me how to do that? And they showed me how to do it. Skip forward a few more years. I was living in Taiwan and I was standing outside a pub uh, playing with fire, twirling fire around. And a, a Taiwanese uh, performance agent came up to me and he said, I can get you paid work doing that. I said, sure, I'm trying to earn money. And so he, um, he organised that. And we were standing outside department stores in Taipei, my wife and I, and uh, doing fire shows and getting paid really good money to do it. So that's how that happened. Only one of many dozens of unrelatable but fun and inspiring stories <laughs> with which we live vicariously through you. Uh, Jim, your book is called The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men. And we're going to talk about the difference between perhaps male and female communication a little bit, you know, in our conversation today. 
But there's one story in the book that I found riveting amongst many. Again, you and I have lived very different lives, but I've enjoyed living vicariously through you from having come to know you. And I think it was from your time when you were living in India, and you were on a train. And you were, I think you even wrote that you purchased a ticket that enabled you to sit on the floor, which I didn't quite understand, versus like stand or even sit in a seat. And you had a, a, a nonverbal encounter with a, a mother and such. And I read the passage twice because I found it so interesting as a great illustration of how powerful our nonverbal communication is. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. We'll talk about that, especially now in an increasingly hybrid and digital world. Will you recreate that story and maybe tease out what the relevant lesson is for all of us as leaders, regardless of gender, in 2022? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, the reason I was sitting on the floor outside the toilets, they call it cattle class, uh, it, which is where the untouchables sit, which is a caste um, in India that still exists to a large degree. The caste system still exists. And I mean, this was many years ago. This was in the 90s. But I wanted to sit there because I was trying to immerse myself in the culture. I was trying to be, I wanted to disappear into the culture. I wanted people to stop treating me like a rich uh, Westerner, which funnily enough, I still was. I had money in the bank, but I uh, dressed in local garb. Uh, I, I, I looked very simple. I looked like I didn't have much. Uh, and I did. I actually managed to, to, to disappear into the culture and beggars even stopped begging from me. And that was a sign to me that, um, that I'd done what I was setting out to do or part of. So I was there on this um, train in the middle of the night in India. And it's a warm and balmy night in southern India. And we were rattling along and I was squashed in between. I sat near the door because the doors are open and that was a bit of fresh air to a bit of reprieve from the odours coming from the toilet that was not very far away from me. And we were squashed in there, all of us, and there was a, a woman next to me with three young children from breastfeeding through to toddler. And we were squashed right up next to each other. And she didn't speak a, a word of English, nor any Hindi. I spoke a little bit of Hindi, but she didn't speak Hindi. So we couldn't talk with each other, but we spent, I don't know, five or six hours squashed up next to each other on this train through the night and her kids were climbing over me and at one point one of the, the children had got comfortable enough with me and they were tired and they wanted to kind of go to sleep and she looked at me do you mind you know all communicating non-verbally do you mind my, my kid being on you and I'm like no of course not it's fine you know and the kid went to sleep which was pretty cute in my arms and she was sharing her food with me which are these simple nuts um, in rolled up in newspaper and she was sharing her food with me and we kind of had this, you know, when you're half asleep, you know, it's nighttime and you're kind of half asleep and half, but you're, you're lucid, but still a bit drowsy, you know. And uh, we had this amazing connection through the night. And then in the, just as the sun was starting to rise and the light was starting to change colour, the train slowed down at a rural uh, station. And quite often in these rural stations, the train doesn't actually come to a stop. It comes to about walking pace and people jump on and off the moving train. And it was her stop and she gathered up her kids and her belongings and as she was stepping over me to get off the train she held out her hand and in my delirium i thought she was kind of shaking my hand to say goodbye or something which wasn't normal because normally a, a female with a, a foreigner male there would make a namaste and just get off the train but she reached her hand out and so i reached my hand out to her and she pushed a five rupee note into my hand and we were talking about 
10 cents or something. But she gave me money, you know. And then quickly I saw what she did and I was saying, nay, did he, nay, no, sister, no, stop, come back. But she got off the train and disappeared into the dawn. And I sat there, my first initial feeling was surprise but also guilt. (laughs) I felt bad. I, I was ashamed. She'd given me enough money to feed her children a meal. You know, and I had $10,000 sitting in the bank. I was pretending to be poor. Um, and I, my first feeling was, was guilt. And then after that, as the train rattled off into the, into the morning and I sat there with the monotonous sound of the clickety-clack next to me out the open door, I, I was reflecting on this and I felt accepted and I felt seen. Namaste actually means I see you. You know, not just see you as in visually, but see you as in I acknowledge you. And she had looked at me and supported me on whatever mission she thought I was on. She thought I was probably a Western sadhu seeking spiritual enlightenment. Uh, That's how she could have pigeonholed me. But the communication was, I see you and I support you, you know, and it was beautiful. It ended up becoming a really beautiful moment for me. Jim, I'm interested to know, and you're not an expert in uh, digital communication, although it's a certainly you know leadership competency now, right? Our in many cases our reputation, how we show up, our brand is increasingly expressed digitally. Look at us today, right? You and I have not ever met in person yet. We will this year. Uh, what what insights would you glean or tease out from that in terms of how we all now that are much more comfortable in a digital environment, whether it's Zoom or or, or, or Teams or ZenCast or whatever the platform is? What what? What would you remind us to do in terms of our speed, our eye contact, our, our body language as it relates to our brand of communication? Yeah, look, it's a great question and it's contextual. It depends on who you're talking with, um, you know, how well you know them, how well you know them behaviorally, what the purpose of the communication is. I mean, if the, purpo- if the communication is purely transactional, I need to get you some information and you and I already have a working relationship and... It's, it's, that's all it is, then perhaps an email would suffice, you know, or a text message or WhatsApp or Teams or Slack or whatever you're using, you know, but if there's any chance that the communication could be misinterpreted, if there's any chance that it could be emotional, then ideally face-to-face, and if that's not an option, Zoom or the like, if that's not an option, pick up the phone, you know. I actually think I, I've found over the last few years of, being you know in restrictions and locked up and the city that i'm near melbourne has had apparently had the longest strongest lockdown measures over the last two and a half years globally Uh, and so a lot of my clients have been having to deal with this and it's actually provided an opportunity and the opportunity is that the good old-fashioned phone call has increased its levity its impact has gone up because everyone's so used to just texting or Slack messaging or Zooming, which is great. But when the phone rings, you know, and even unannounced, heaven forbid, because we have to even text and say, do you mind if I call you? Yes. But if the phone rings like the good old days, right, <laughs> yeah. and, and your leader is on the other end of the phone and they say, hey, I was just um, taking a break and I went into my kitchen to make a cup of coffee and I thought of you and I thought, do you want to put the, t- the kettle on and, and just have a chat like we would have done? you know, passing each other by in the kitchen, at, in the office. And how are you? How it's so very use? true. The serendipity of phone calls is kind of over. If my phone rings, I know it's someone who doesn't know me. 
because you know the top yeah. couple hundred people will text you, hey, can you talk? Hey, are you free? Hey, do you have five yeah. minutes? And even now, I find it somewhat uncomfortable to have a phone call because I'm so used to seeing you on camera. So if someone yeah. schedules a conference call, I think, well, wait, where's the Zoom link? Where's the Teams link, right? Because yeah. I so enjoy that side of it. Um, it's a great reminder to us to know if there's any chance of misinterpretation of your motive, your intent, your energy, you should do it face-to-face -face, or at least probably on video. And if minimally not best. that, then on the phone call as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Video is best. And if you can't, then phone, yeah. you know, but certainly don't text something that can be easily misinterpreted yeah. or, or yeah. taken emotionally because yeah. it will be. Easy reminder, but relationships aren't always easy. Uh, Jim, a central premise of your book and of your writing and expertise is helping us all reground ourselves in why. And you asked this question throughout the book, you know, why? For what purpose would I communicate this? And I want you to riff on this for a moment. But first, I want to share a kind of an experience I had when I read your book. Um, I tend to be what I call, and others call, an outward processor. If I have a thought, I tend to speak it. Because I like to know what it feels like to hear it. Do I really believe that? Is that really what I believe? And so many people are internal processors. They have to... They don't have to say it to know if they believe it or not, but I tend to perhaps even sometimes irresponsibly process my things verbally until I know, is that what I believe? Is that what I mean? And I think I've learned from you and from your book and following you on social media and your writings to really understand, so what's my purpose? Why am I communicating this? Will you take that and maybe um, unpack that a little? Yeah, absolutely. And even if the purpose for communicating this is to do exactly what you just said, Scott. So for what purpose am I about to say this, and this can happen in, a, in lightning speed, you can understand this very quickly, is to outwardly process this. And depending on who you're talking to, Scott, you might even have the relationship with, with them where you say, excuse me for, for a couple of minutes, I'm just going to outwardly riff this and process this with you and I'm going to bounce this off you or even just off my own thinking, external thinking process, and that might be the reason why. I think to have a good understanding of the reason why, first of all, can be an indication of whether you should actually say what you want to say or not. You know, is this going to serve the greater good? For what purpose am I about to go and communicate this to this person? Is it a purely selfish motivation, which sometimes is, is, is functional? I, I want this person to know how I feel because we're in relationship with each other. Or is it to serve a higher purpose? You know, and also when someone comes to communicate with you and you may be astounded or confused or not understanding what's going on in that moment with this person, that you can pause and breathe and seek to understand for what purpose do I think this person is um, raising their voice at me right now or putting their head on my shoulder right now if it's a, a loved one you know, in, a, in a more personal relationship. And to understand for what purpose helps us then serve the communication itself, right? And the word communication comes from the Latin noun communicatio, which is a sharing, and the verb communicare, which means to make common. So it's not a telling. It's not a shouting. It's, a, it's communication itself is to make common an understanding. So to remember that to serve the communication itself means to, to be able to, and that's why I call the, the book The Art of Conscious Communication, because the more conscious we are of something, the more aware we are. And so to be more aware of the communication itself, rather than just making it all about me, you know, and um, I think that this can help us get over one of the challenges of, of successful communication, which is this sense of identity, you know, our ego. 
And our ego is usually the thing that's getting in the way of successful communication. That's a whole other part that we can talk about if you want to. But yeah, so I think that having an understanding of the purpose, the reason why, is a great place to start. Jim, leaders that are conscious communicators, they do what differently than those perhaps who are unconscious communicators? How, what's the impact? What's the difference? What's the outcome? How are the relationships different when someone practices the art of conscious communication? What does that look like, feel like, sound like? Many things, but, but arguably the most important is that they understand people better, right? And I, I, Simon Sinek said it beautifully the other day. I saw one of his posts and he said, 100% of your staff are people. 100% of your customers are people. 100% of your suppliers or associates are people. If you don't get people, you don't get business. And, and as a leadership coach, I take that. If you don't get people, you don't get leadership. You know, leadership's not about being, you know, it's not about leadership per se, it's about people and being able to develop relationships with people where they clearly understand why are we here? What are we doing? What's the purpose of this organisation? Where are we going? What does it look like at some point in time in the future? What are we aiming for? Our vision, you know, and how do we connect? How do we communicate? How do we relate in a way that enables us to feel safe enough to lean in? you know, to intrinsically engage with, with being here and doing something together, whatever it is that we're doing, you know. So as a leader, communication is ultimately important. And more conscious communicators, more conscious leaders are more aware of the people that they're leading. You know, they're more aware of their motivations. They're more aware of their communication styles. They're more aware of their behavioural styles. You know, if I, if I know my team really well as individuals, you know, and how they process information depending on their behavioural style and how, what, what matters to them depending on their personal lives uh, and what their strengths are, then I can communicate much more effectively with them than if I'm just in there and it's all about me. You know, the less conscious we are, the more our ego is driving it and, and that just means that we're more self-centred. So philosophically, I'm bought in. Uh, uh, sell me practically. Uh, what are some practical tips, examples styles that people that are listening and watching can be reflective on and say, gosh, you know, I do that, I should stop doing that, or I don't do that, I might think about that. Uh, uh, what does that look like and sound like? Give us some examples of things anybody listening and watching could do differently that today they could become a more conscious communicator. Yeah, absolutely. Two of the, two, two of the most uh, impactful practices that I created into habits starting 10 years ago and now have become just a part of the way I, I live each day. A practice of mindfulness, meditation, or integrated mindfulness, and mindfulness just being the practice of, the mind training of observing the present moment. Just simple observation, you know? And that can be a meditation, so you can sit and meditate mindfully and just notice what you can notice. Or it can be integrated, so you can brush your teeth mindfully, as in, while you're brushing your teeth, just take all of your attention to what you can notice in the act of brushing your teeth. Now, this is, this is very literally mind training. You're training your mind to be able to focus, you're, to pay attention, to be present, but you're also training your mind to be able to 
kind of elevate outside the identification with each moment. So we identify with everything. We identify with our emotional state. I am angry or I am frustrated. We identify with our ideology, our political standpoint. When we identify with something, we're very defensive of that. We, we defend it. So that looks like when you're in communication with someone, if they've got a different point of view and you're identified with your point of view, you are vehemently <laughs> defending your standpoint. So you're not really hearing them. It makes it hard to have good communication. But if you've been training the mind to be able to step outside of your experience of identification and simply notice the moment, you're more open-minded. You, your ability to, to seek to understand where they're coming from improves, right? This improves communication. So as a leader, you are then opening up to the crazy ideas that a team member might have that you would have been shut off, closed off to before because your, your sense of identity, your sense of experience, your sense of everything that you know would have shut that out saying, no, 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 I, that doesn't work. And it may or may not work. And that's not necessarily the point. It doesn't mean that you actually have to then take on everybody's idea. But if you're creating a team culture because of your ability to get out, out of your own way and open up to other possibilities, you're creating a team culture where your people feel safe to have crazy ideas. That's where genius comes from, right? So that's the, the mindfulness practice. And it's a mind training, which I highly recommend. Jim, stop the there a second. Before you pivot, I want you to teach me something. Um, as an American, this will sound preposterous in the beginning, but as an American, it seems like it's never been harder to do that. You've got the world of Trump, whether you're positive or negative. You've got the world of the pandemic. No one's positive, but some don't think it was nearly as bad as it was although a million people did die in America. You've got school shootings, which seem to be almost daily, and, and you know shootings on city streets. You've got Roe versus Wade now being overturned. You've got inflation and the economy and Black Lives Matter and social justice and, uh, and on and on and on. It, it, I was listening to you thinking, gosh, when I'm brushing my teeth, what am I thinking about? I, I don't know. I'm sure every country, every nationality, every person has the same level of onslaught. What are some tips you might give people like me that are in the midst of just what seems like constant barrage of turmoil and anxiety and opinions and, and the energy you mentioned you know, about when, when someone comes to you with a political conversation, I am so almost toxically passionate about my point of view. They come in completely discounted because I've just been exposed to so much vitriol and, and the impact of it, it's really difficult for me to show any empathy or quite frankly, any space between the stimulus and my response. I'm the opposite of a conscious communicator. I'm like a vitriolic do or die communicator. I don't wanna be that. Yeah, well, welcome to being human, Scott. That's well, maybe what you human just in 2022, is... it didn't seem this way, you know, yeah. it didn't seem like this was the way three maybe years ago. Yeah, look, it's, it, it is getting crazy, and that's why I'm passionate about, um, you know, this conversation that we're having a, a around more conscious communication. Because what, what's happening for you when someone comes with their idea and you are immediately vitriolic, as you said, and, you, you know, you've, you're passionately defending your, um, you know, your ideology is because what happens is that our sense of identity is formed in our beliefs around the way we think things should be. And we defend our sense of identity like it's life and death. Yeah. For the ego, it's very literally life and death. Now, I've had the death of ego 
to a certain degree, twice in my life. Identity crisis, we call it, where I fell apart and I had no idea who I was. The good news is that you don't actually die. <laughs> you keep living. It's actually an opportunity, I've found. When you have a, a, an identity crisis, it's an opportunity to re-identify in a more functional way, the way that you choose to see yourself. Now, that's a whole other story. But coming back to what you were talking about, man, I've watched families fall apart in the last two years, families that loved each other. And one family member was pro-vax and the other family member was anti-vax. And they've actually separated. They have disowned each other and said, you are no longer my brother or son or daughter. They've actually fallen apart as a family. Why? Because their ego, their sense of identity, had enmeshed itself in this idea of either pro-vax or anti-vax, whatever your idea is, left or right, blue or red. And it defends itself to the death and will not let go of how it thinks things should be, and it will separate and lose love over that. And that's crazy. That's crazy, and that's just ego. You know, so this practice of mindfulness meditation, go and find a free app. I've got one. Pop it in your show notes. It's a free mindfulness meditation um, introductory course that I've put together, super simple. Find that or anything else that will help you understand and teach yourself. It's, a, it's very rudimentary. It's a, it's a fundamental practice. It's quite simple. It's not easy. It's simple, but not easy. The simplicity is that it's training your mind to just notice what you can notice in the moment. What can I hear? What can I taste? What can I see? What can I feel? What are my thoughts doing? You can notice your thoughts. That's the practice. And over time, you do get better at it. And I know meditation teachers will tell you that's not the point. You're not striving to get good at it. Um, but that just does happen. It's like serving a tennis ball. You keep serving a tennis ball, you get better at it. So you keep practicing mindfulness, which is an observation of the present moment, and you get better at it. You know? And it's very helpful. Jim, I interrupted you. You were talking about a couple of uh, practical tips. The first was this idea of practicing mindfulness. What else was on your mind? Pause moments. I call them pause moments. This is one of those little 1% habits that if you form is deceptively simple. And I first heard this actually at the Global Mindful Leader Forum in Sydney, Australia in 2014. And it was one of your countrymen. It was a, an American keynote speaker who was a meditation guru. And he came up onto the stage, delightful little man, short of stature, but massive, just emanated this beautiful, commanding energy. It was, you know, one of these keynote speakers that walks onto the stage and the whole auditorium just goes quiet, you know. And it was just the right timing for me to hear what he said. You know, I've been to plenty of conferences and I've seen lots of keynote speakers and you get inspired in the moment. You go, wow, that was great. And you walk away and nothing changes, right? But this was one of those moments where it was just the right time for me to hear this man speak. And he said a few things that landed for me, but one of them that he said was, pause often. And I thought, what does he mean by that? And I just took it quite literally. So I created a habit using sticky notes all around my house to pause. So there's certain moments where I just, I'm in the middle of something, pause, and then continue. It only takes three to five seconds. And in that moment of pausing, just become mindful. Just notice what you can notice. Notice where your heart rate's at. Notice what you can hear. Just do a little notice and then continue. Now, over time, what this becomes is a little micro recalibration back to your place of equanimity. 
back to your calm center. Because we wake up in the morning, Scott, and we get on with the day, right? And you're up and it's kids off to school and lunch boxes and brushing your teeth and jump in the shower and shirt on and then your clients and then you're driving and then you're late and then you're this and through the day, right? Either reasonably functionally or not. And then you get to the end of the day and you do the dishes and you get the kids into bed and you have a glass of wine and you kind of watch a bit of Netflix and then you go, oh, and then you wake up the next day and you do it all over again. Right? And we're kind of oscillating at this high frequency level, creating a habit of pause moments just keeps bringing you back to your calm center throughout the day. And I find them especially um, effective when I'm running late. So if I'm running late for a meeting, which these days is to a Zoom meeting, and I hate being late, it's a personal value of mine. I just do not like being late. Uh, but if I'm running late for something, just before I open the laptop and turn on the Zoom meeting, I'll pause, take a breath, and then go to the meeting. Now, I'm only three seconds later to the meeting than I would have been. I was already late, right? But I'm showing up in a different state. So as a leader, you're racing around doing lots of things and then you've got a one-to-one -one with one of the people in your team. And rather than racing into the one-to-one -one going, right, okay, let's go, how are you, what's going on? <laughs> that before you walk into that office or into that Zoom meeting, that you pause, recalibrate and come in calm and centred so that you can serve, right? Because leadership essentially is about service. It's about getting out of your own way so that it's not about you, it's about your team, it's about your people, it's about the mission. And being able to do that in a calm, centred fashion, I find is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really helpful habit to create. I don't know what it's like for our listeners and viewers, but my blood pressure has lowered dramatically in the last 30-plus minutes listening and learning from you. Uh, you may be aware a few weeks ago I had the privilege of interviewing Deepak Chopra, and one of the many wise things he said was that there are human beings and there are human doings. And I'm not sure I've heard a wiser thing in my life because at 54, as of a couple days ago, I'm still very much a human doing. And I can't stop that because of the commitments I've made to others and of obligations that I'm taking seriously. But at the same time, listening to you, I'm going to try to really find what is that sweet spot between being a human being and a human doing. And I think this notion of pause would serve me well countless times a day, not to mention improve my marriage. Uh, as we end, Jim, two, two things. You mentioned you have a mindfulness app. Tell us where to find it and what it is. If you go to my website, gemfuller.com, uh, you'll find the online courses there. So gemfuller.com is the home for everything. If you want to know more about me, watch the TEDx talk, buy the book, um, you know, do the online courses, or even just reach out to me and um, my business team will, will get the email and let me know that you've reached out. Just go there. And so I'll remove the, well, no, if you can put in the show notes, spring gift is the code to make okay. the course free. Spring gift. Spring, spring Got gift. Got it. And by the um, way, Jim's yeah. name is spelled J-E-M, not J-I-M. Yes, correct. And not G-E-M. It's, it's Jem, J-E-M, which is short for Jeremy. There you go. There's an inside tip Love to it. Jim. I was christened when I was born. Scott, I just wanted to say for you uh, and for anyone else that's wondering about this, going from a human doing to a human being doesn't require more time. It's not like, oh, now I've got to find an extra hour every day to do this new practice thing. No, no, no. You can actually practice human being while you're still doing stuff. It's a consciousness. It's, a, it's an awareness of 
of yourself and, and those around you and life around you while you're doing what you're doing. This is integrated mindfulness. So you can be walking to the office, metaphorically, walking from the car to the office. Now you're still on the way to a meeting, but as you're walking, you can just spend a moment going, ah, okay, I'm just gonna notice what I can notice. I'm just gonna smell the roses, literally, right? And then you're showing up into that next moment of doing and you're more being because you're more in that moment in yourself. It is evident why you are in such demand for your coaching clients and keynotes. Let's end today's conversation with a little bit of topic around gender. Your book is titled The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men. Uh, Is there anything for us to glean for, for women who are married to men? for women who are leading men, for men who are married to men, for men who are leading men, what are some insights you might leave us with, Jim, on what's unique about the way men communicate and how it maybe gets them in trouble and when they do it right, the results are remarkable? Yeah, so I have to generalize to answer that question. And so to those of you who don't fall into this generalization, I acknowledge you. Uh, So I need to generalize. In our cultures, when I say our cultures, I mean in the States and in Australia, unfortunately, because of the patriarchal structures that we're all born into, generally speaking, our boys are taught to excommunicate themselves from their emotional sensitive selves. Man up, suck it up, toughen up, harden up. Don't cry like a girl, I got told. I got told when I was a boy. And I was a very sensitive emotional boy, but I was told that is not okay you're male and you need to be a man one day and to be a man you can't be emotional you can't be vulnerable we got taught that which is not true it was culturally appropriate a a few generations ago but it's not anymore in fact i would argue it's the opposite we can be more functional and get better results the more access we have to our emotional selves to our emotional intelligence to our ability to connect and build rapport with other people etc so for men, generally speaking, um, they are reasonably devoid or, or, or disconnected from that part of themselves. And so when I, was, when I first started writing the book, I was writing it generally for everybody and I had a book writing mentor here in Australia and she said to me, Jim, you need to pick an audience because you're writing it you know, too generally. She said, I think this book would be really good for men. And at the time we had some prominent male politicians here who had been ousted for behaving in terrible ways, completely unacceptable ways. And the media got onto it and they got into a lot of strife. I thought, wow, we need to improve this brand of men. It's time to upgrade the stereotype of of man because stereotypically it's outdated and dysfunctional and it's time to upgrade that. As men, we need to figure out ways to get better at being men, right? Um, And I believe that men and people generally are good. Most people are good. We just get sold on bad ideas. We just don't know any better. But I believe most people are good. So I decided to write the book for men. And so to answer your question, Scott, um, and a lot of women are picking up the book and loving it and emailing me and saying, thank you so much for writing this book. I got a lot from it and it's helping me with my man understand him more. So I would dedicate some time to allowing yourself to explore how you feel about anything. How do you feel about that? And that might seem foreign to to a lot of 
men that might, might seem foreign. So step one, just explore how you feel about something. Step two, have the courage to start to communicate that with anyone you care about, someone you feel safe with, whether it's your wife or husband or, you know, or a close friend or a sibling. Have the courage to just start to express how you feel. Anyway, that's a, that's a tip for, for starting. Jim Fuller, not, all, not only are you remarkably credible, you're remarkably likable. So I'm delighted <laughs> that you joined us today in the program. Pick up a copy of the book. Look forward to Jim Fuller bursting on the scenes here uh, in America in the coming months and years. Thanks for your time. We'll have you back again to take a deeper dive on communication. Thanks, Jim. Thank you so much, Scott. Namaste. Thanks, everybody, for your time. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm-hmm.